We are in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 9 today. So if you'd open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 1 verse 9. I just showed those videos of Africans worshiping and dancing and you might be wondering, Pastor Tim, did you dance? I've been going there for 20 years and about 20 years ago they asked me to and they haven't asked since. (laughs) And you might be like, why don't we dance like that in church? It's so joyful, it's so beautiful and I agree it is. Um, I, you know, I don't have a good answer for that. Um, I would say this, though. If you're to take a materialist worshiper who plays the lottery in Africa, a materialist worshiper who plays the lottery, and they were to win their heart's desire, they were to win the lottery, and they were in a big gathering, let me tell you, everybody in the room would know they had just won, okay? I mean, they would be whooping and dancing and shouting and expressive. If you're in Minnesota and you're a materialist, and you play the lottery, and you win. And somebody tells you, you just won the lottery. What's going to be the response in a crowded room of people? Oh, that's good. That's good. Right? <laughs> so we, I, I just have never grown up in a church that has done that. Now, there are innovators who do that. Maybe they hit it. Maybe they go off on something. I, you know, but I, I just uh, received the culture that I'm in, and and I praise God. And I do look forward to the day. I really believe that in heaven we will be uh, that expressive and everything. But I think uh, Minnesotans, we might be a little hindered in our culture. And, uh, and I am not an innovative pastor. I'm just going to continue faithfully with the tradition I've been given. So anyway, that's the long and short of it. No, I did not dance. Um, they did not ask. I don't think they would again. <laughs> it was pretty stiff. I'll say that. All right. Now... Uh, we are in Revelation chapter 1, and, and that was the topic of what we discussed there, was how do you approach prophecy? And Pastor Charlie taught and actually challenged my interpretation in an area that I'll be thinking through, and I'll let you know when we get to it. But um, uh, we had a good time uh, studying that together, and uh, looking forward to continuing that. We are in chapter 1, verse 9. Now, Isaiah told us about Jesus' first coming. They, he told us about the demeanor of Jesus as a person when he came. Isaiah 53, 2 says, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. So uh, not to be cruel, but my understanding is that the body of Jesus that he had given himself in this life was what humanity would be called either plain or perhaps even homely. Uh, He had no beauty that anyone should desire, desire him. Uh, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. And I believe this refers to his ministry and his suffering for us. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. And, And so Jesus, when he walked this earth, was very much despised. And I'll say this, a lot like evangelicals are despised today too, a lot like the local church is despised by many in our broader culture. And they might even say, oh, you know, we love the idea of Jesus. Well, if he were here, you wouldn't. (laughs) If he were here preaching the things he was preaching, then you would not love Jesus. And uh, we uh, are here preaching Jesus Christ and preaching his truth. And I don't think we should expect to be loved. He was not loved. And then... We also see this in Isaiah 53. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb led to slaughter and like sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Now, Isaiah tells us biblically what to expect in the first coming of Jesus. Do not mistake that for being what Jesus is like. If you think that is the sum total of Jesus, 
somebody who is unlovely and unglorious and never going to speak up. You've got the wrong view of Jesus. That was his first coming. And, and Revelation 1 is going to help you with that view of Jesus as we read here today. Now, as we look at these few verses, uh, number one, we're going to see John is on the island of Patmos to receive his prophetic vision. We're going to talk about his circumstance. Number two, he's going to see a vision of Jesus Christ in his true splendor of deity. Number three, he's going to receive reassurance from Jesus that he is, Jesus is the first and the last. That's a huge statement of deity. I am the first and the last. And that Jesus has power over death in Hades. And then finally, um, we're going to see the position of Jesus in relationship to the modern church. Uh, or at least the then, con the then contemporary church, but I believe it really applies even to today. Um, let's look at chapter 1, Revelation chapter 1, verse number 9. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. And the hairs of his head were white like wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in the furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell, at his, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. And the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Let's pray. Father, as we open your word, we ask that your spirit would be on us to uh, enlighten us and, and to enlighten your word in our hearts. Help us to understand its significance. God, help us to see the beauty of Jesus Christ, his glory. And God, help us to take comfort in him. I pray that we would both be undone when we consider his holiness and his majesty, but I also pray, Lord, that we'd be strengthened in him as he is our Savior, and he has the keys of death and Hades, and he is for us. Bless us as we study in Jesus' name. Amen. As we begin here, John is on Patmos, the island of Patmos. Now, that sounds really nice to you and me, right? Oh, I'm on an island. I'd like to be on an island. I don't know if you've ever been on an island and had to get goods to the island. Uh, like, can you imagine stocking a Home Depot on an island? Um, it's expensive. Everything's expensive. Getting, getting supplies. This is not that kind of island. This is a rocky, uh, uh, inhospitable island. Um, and, uh, and, but he's on this island of Patmos, and he's in the spirit on the Lord's day. He's commanded to write to the seven churches of Asia Minor near him on the mainland. So uh, we're looking here at verse number 9. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation. So he's saying, I am suffering with you. I'm a partner in tribulation. And the kingdom... 
and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. And I, I think what he's saying there that we, we, we follow Jesus. He was patient. He endured suffering. And when you are in Jesus, you endure suffering, this patient endurance. He says, uh, he says uh, that are in Jesus, I was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. So the reason he's there is the word of God. Some people think that's, oh, I went, he went there to write, you know, like a sabbatical. Um, probably not, probably not. That's not the testimony of the ancient church anyway. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. Uh, so in the Spirit, we understand that he's in a prophetic vision kind of a state, uh, something that is unusually delightful and, 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 and effective, and you're going to see that in his writing. The Lord's day I would take to be Sunday, the first day of the week, not Going forward in this vision to the day of the Lord, uh, that phrasing doesn't work in the original language. This is, as I would understand it, the Lord's Day or Sunday. And I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, um, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. So why was John on Patmos? Early church fathers such as Irenaeus, Clement of Alexandria, and Eusebius said that he was on this island as an exile under the ruler Domitian. Uh, we have a date for revelation in this church that we, we would say probably it's 95 AD. Uh, we talked about reasons others would have different dates and why we had those in our first sermon here on the book of Revelation. But we see it as 95 AD. Domitian was a ruler until 96 AD when he was executed by his court. So while John is writing, he is still in uh, prison. He is still uh, not in a prison per se, but exiled to this island. Early sources indicate that about A.D. 96 was the date of uh, Domitian's death and that John was then allowed to return to Ephesus when that happened. Now, if you think about John being on this island, and again, in antiquities, if you're in prison, you are suffering from a lack of supplies, a lack of goods. So uh, the prison did not have a feeding system and clothing system for you. Uh, you, you relied on loved ones, on, on friends, on family. A lot of the prison passages in the New Testament talk, that talk about visiting those who are in prison, it's not talking about visiting rapists and murderers. It's talking about visiting Christians who are in prison for the gospel. And, and how identifying with him in the book of Hebrews caused you the, to then be persecuted and lose your own goods. And, and, and so think about John. He's on this island. Uh, he, he's going to be having some needs. And getting those needs fulfilled by friends, family, the churches is going to be harder because he is on that island. Keep that thought in the back of your mind um, for the idea of seven messengers from seven churches in um, how that, that might have been. Some of, some of the uh, logistics here might have been just as plain as dirt for, for what he was going through. In verse 9, he calls himself a fellow sufferer with them in the gospel and in the patience of Jesus Christ. Uh, John had suffered many things. In Acts 12, he saw his brother get executed for the gospel under, uh, by Herod. In Acts 12, verse 1, it says, About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed the James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw it please the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. So Herod was just getting started, but J uh, James, the brother of John, was an early victim. So, so this John knew suffering. He had lost his brother decades earlier to Herod. 
And he says here that he is, on, he is on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. And that's the same language as you see for the martyrs, why they were martyred in Revelation 6-9. I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. Very similar here, for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus. So both from ancient history, as a witness of ancient history, as well as the wording here, I would say, no, John is not on a, a sabbatical to write this and to encounter God, uh, you know, but he is rather in prison, and God is using bleak circumstances for an amazing event. Now, the churches are listed in order, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea, and, um, and, and again, I, I, why this order? Uh, some people would say, well, each church represents an age in the church with Laodicea representing today where the church is really wealthy and thinks it's so scientific with their eye salve and this eye balm that Laodicea had and we have need of nothing, but we are poor and destitute and wretched. And, and that really fits well if you're an American church. But in the last hundred years, we've had more martyrs than at any other time in history. Cumulative is my understanding. Uh, the majority of churches today are meeting with hunger, concerns of hunger, concerns of persecution. Again, if you're in the West or the United States, well, you know, you've got a happier lot. But, um, and, and Laodicea fits you, you know, being, the idea of being fat and oversupplied and just totally having no needs. But there's a lot of churches that would say, huh? <laughs> Laodicea, how does that fit us? Um, we're hungry. And, um, and so uh, my, my, my understanding is Patmos is here, and if you were delivering packages to the seven churches, you would take a boat to get over to Ephesus, you'd walk to Smyrna, you'd take a boat to get to Pergamum, then you'd walk to Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. That, that this is just, if I were talking about going to the towns to the north of us here, you know, if I'm running errands, I'd say, well, I'm going to Pine Island, Zimbrota, Wanamingo, Kenyon. Uh, you know, I, I just kind of laid out my path, and I think that's the way that, that John is listing them. Um, so there are seven literal churches, and that number seven is a beautiful number in the Bible. It's a number of completion. It's a number of wholeness. And yet there are literally seven churches listed from seven literal cities. I do believe the number seven is representing some form of completeness here. Other churches that existed in Asia Minor, from Acts chapter 16, we know Troas. From Acts chapter 20, Asos. From Acts chapter 20, Miletus. Uh, from Colossians chapter 1, Colossae. From Colossians chapter 4, Hierapolis. Those are all Asia Minor churches that are not listed as one of the seven churches. And, and so there were more than seven, and yet the Holy Spirit refers to, the Lord refers to the seven churches of Asia Minor. Uh, what is going on with that? I believe these seven are representative of the whole. Also, there might just be some very plain as dirt reality here. John is on an island. And perhaps these churches are taking up a collection for him. Well, our understanding is before Jerusalem fell in 70 AD, John went to Asia Minor to minister the gospel. And he's been in these churches. And so he's, on, he's in prison on an island. And it could be that these are the seven churches that are supporting him while he's in prison. In fact, it could be that seven messengers are going to be bringing support to him and that they're the very seven messengers that are the seven stars that he's going to give these letters to when they bring his support. Again, some of this could just be so practical and so plain as dirt reality of living life in antiquities, it's hard to say. But I do believe that the seven churches, the number seven is significant, that it's significant for Asia Minor that the issues they were facing were probably representative of all the churches in Asia Minor. And you know what? 
I am really suspicious that it's representative of us today too. That all seven of the churches, we can all find things that it, depending on which church you are, uh, what issues you're facing, that, that we're going to find application um, uh, from these seven churches. So I think there is a completeness, there is a symbolism, but there are literally seven churches. Again, I think on the Lord's Day equals Sunday, not uh, 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 being forecast into the day of the Lord. I, 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 the, the, the translation work there, if you go to the day of the Lord passages in the Septuagint, the Greek copy of the Old Testament, it doesn't translate them with this verbiage, so um, different verbiage. I think it's just literally he's on a Sunday when all of this begins. So he's in Patmos, he's in the Spirit on the Lord's Day, and he has his vision. In the center of seven lampstands stood one like the Son of Man adorned with glorious attributes. Verses 12 through 16. Then I turned to see a voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstand was one like a Son of Man. Now, Son of Man is a key theological term. It is in no way diminishing the deity of Jesus Christ. It is a throwback to Daniel chapter 7 and Daniel chapter 10, huge prophetic passages. This is a passage in which Jesus is going to be quoted as saying, I am the first and the last. This is not any kind of a slight on his deity. This is an important uh, prophetic term that he is one like unto the Son of Man, clothed with a long robe and a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like wool, like snow. His eyes were like flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. So the Son of Man passages from Daniel chapter 7, if you just want to listen to a couple of verses from there, I saw... In the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days, that would be the father, and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away in his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. As we go to Daniel chapter 10, we see some of the clothing and the appearance of this Son of Man. I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, a man clothed in white linen with a belt of fine gold and uphaz around his waist. His body was like beryl, his face like the appearance of lightning, and his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze and the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude. We've seen the sound of a multitude, the sound of uh, a trumpet. We've seen the sound of many waters. These are adjectives that come out of a culture where you did not have uh, bombs. You did not have Harley-Davidson motorcycles. Uh, You did not have jet engines. You had the sounds of nature, the sounds of trumpets, the sounds of many voices shouting a war cry, and uh, these are the descriptions of the, uh, the, the voice of the Son of God, powerful. He is standing in the middle of seven golden lampstands. This is not seven lamps on a menorah. Uh, that's what you have in Zechariah chapter 4, verse 2, representative of Israel. Again, you have the number seven, which is odd because Israel is 12 tribes, but The significance of the number seven is completeness. And these lamps in in Zechariah chapter four are to be a light to the Gentiles. 
a complete, Israel is to be a complete light to the Gentiles, a light to the world. Well, here God gives the similar vision. Instead of seven lamps on a lampstand, it's seven lampstands, independent lampstands with the Son of God standing in the middle. And we don't have to guess what these lampstands are. They are churches. So you have seven independent churches. Again, the number seven, the idea of light. Uh, the, the church is to be a light to the world. I, I think that that is the significance of what's going on there. And who is in the middle of the seven independent churches, the seven lampstands? Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He is controlling it all. And in his hand, he has seven stars, which we're going to learn are seven messengers or seven angels here in just a moment. Look at verse number 16 on that. In his right hand, he held the seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. And Daniel, it was like lightning. It's just so bright. You cannot be looking on his face. It is so powerfully glorious. And um, the, the, the uh, clothing, by the way, um, the clothing, if you look at that, there's some debate among Bible students. Is this the clothing of a king, the clothing of a priest? I just didn't find that discussion very edifying. I think you can look at the clothing and see glory in it. He's clothed with a long robe, with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. The idea of white hair could be the idea of gray hair and wisdom that you see in Proverbs, or it could just be the idea of power that that is coming here, you know, through this. Uh, um, His eyes are were like a flame of fire. Uh, boy, his eyes would just look right through you, would judge issues. His feet like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. Uh, the idea there, I think, is both strength as well as purity. Um, uh, you know, and, and uh, with, with, again, the, the idea of strength with these feet to, to crush the winepress of God's wrath. Um, just powerful and yet pure. Um, it says his voice is like the roar of many waters once again here. And so, uh, back to the seven stars in verse 16, he holds them in his hand. What does that mean, he holds them in his hand? It could mean that he shelters the stars, he protects the stars, and I certainly hope he does, the messengers or the angels. It, it also certainly means that he has authority over them, that they are sent at his dispatching to do his will. Uh, In other words, there's a possessive idea there with these stars. We'll get back to the stars in a little bit. Falling as a dead man in his presence, point number three, John receives strength and comfort in the person and power of Jesus. Verse 17, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not. I am the first and the last. That is such a statement of deity. We'll look in a moment. And the living one, I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades, death and the realm of the dead. Now, John, this is not the first time he fell down weak at the presence of Jesus. In, at the uh, Mount of Transfiguration in Matthew 17, he had that experience then as well. And it says there, but Jesus came and touched them saying, rise and have no fear. So John is familiar with the presence of Jesus and his glorious deity And you have to ask yourself, when you see John falling apart here, what is worship? What is a good worship service? Just just think for a moment with me, because you may have attended a church service where you were overcome with some particular guilt that the Holy Spirit is working on you, and you're like, God, I am a man and a woman of unclean lips, I'm in the midst of people of unclean lips, I am 
I am so full of woe for my spiritual condition. And, and you could just be undone with, with, with a sense of God's holiness and your sinfulness during a worship service. And then you can go out in the foyer and you could talk to somebody and they could say, yeah, you know, today's worship service just didn't really do anything for me. And, and what they mean is they didn't feel this excitement. They didn't feel this spine-tingling, oh, that was so good. What is worship? I think some people confuse visceral thrill as the, moment, uh, as, as, as the movement of God in their life. Whereas that may not be the message. If you, if, if you have a sin problem here today, giving you a thrill may not be God's highest order of priority. Causing you to shudder in your sin and, and, and to, to hate your sin and to plead with God to sanctify you from sin, that might be the act of worship. And, and we just see these people in front of him, um, uh, you know, uh, just being totally undone. Time after time after time. It's a cute song, it's a fun thought, but I don't think you ever have to ask, will I dance for you, Jesus? Or will I before you be still? I, I, I think we kind of see the answer to that. Um, it, 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 it's a rather uh, fearful, awesome experience. Jesus declares himself to be the first and the last. Again, it's a title ascribed to the Father. Isaiah 44, verse 6, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and the last. Besides me, there is no God. I am the first and the last, God says. Besides me, there is no God. And here's Jesus who says, fear not, I am the first and the last. Isaiah 48, verse 12. Listen to me, O Jacob and Israel, whom I called. I am he. I am the first and I am the last. My hand laid the foundation of the earth and my right hand spread out the heavens. When I call to them, they stand forth together. I am the first and the last. My hand laid the foundation of the earth. And here's Jesus saying, I am the first and the last. We are to be comforted by the deity of Jesus Christ. We are also to be comforted by his power. Look at verse number 18. Uh, he says, um, uh, verse number 17, fear not, I am the first and the last. Verse 18, and the living, the living one. I died. Behold, I am alive forevermore. And... I have the keys of death and Hades. Uh, in other words, God, uh, God, Jesus Christ has the power over life and death, the realm of the dead. And he is standing before John as the living one, the one who died and now is alive forevermore. He is the firstborn of the resurrection, resurrected to never die again, to have totally conquered death. We are to be comforted in the deity of Jesus. We are to be comforted in the power of Jesus over life and death in this passage. It is troubling to live your life as a frail human being in a typical human body. Uh, you know, just as, as the decades pass in our lives, our bodies go through different challenges, different states of deterioration, if you will, different states of aging. And we all know how this ends, and that's very troubling at times. You look and you see, you know how this ends in this body. And in the United States, we have this little fiction that we preoccupy ourselves with. It's the myth of retirement. And, and it's something that we, we work for it, we save for it, we allow it to define ourselves more or less. Oh, yeah, I've got this kind of retirement, and here's where, and here's how. And, uh, but there's that troubling reality that just when you get to that point of economic success, you know where your body is going to be on average, and you know where it's going directionally. 
And it's just simply not good. In fact, just when you get there with all of the funds for retirement, the things that you could earlier do in your body, you can no longer do or should no longer do in your body. And you just kind of have to take care of your body and you have to take care and be careful. So where do we find our satisfaction? Where do we find our security? We find it in Jesus Christ, not in a sum of money, not in a lifestyle, not in this body. We find our satisfaction in the resurrection. Our joy is in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he is here standing before John as the living one who died and is now alive forevermore. And John knows exactly who he's seeing because he ministered with him as a disciple. We are to take comfort. Jesus has the keys, he says, to death in Hades in verse number 18. That is authority. That is power. Jesus is over all of that. All that worries us, Jesus Christ can be our comfort. Finally, our last point here, John is commissioned to write God's revelation of what was, what is, and what will take place to the seven churches in verses 19 and 20. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, the things that are, and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels or messengers of the seven churches. And the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So verse number 19, you've got this little outline. I've got it up here as what was, what is, what will take place. Um, I take it as programmatic for the book. I take it as to be kind of an outline of what, how the book's going to be laid out. Not everybody does. In fact, if you're an idealist, if you believe that the book of Revelation is not about future events, but it's just about ideas, then you really cannot take it that way. Um, and, and so how would you not take it as the, the layout of the book? Well, if you take the first phrase and you say, right there for the things that you have seen, and you treat the whole prophetic vision like a data dump. Okay, like, uh, you know, this, this is going to be a data dump into your brain, the things that you have seen. And then, so write the things that you have seen, which consists of both things that are and things that will be. So then, therefore, you don't have an outline. Uh, and, and so that's how some Christians take it. I'm a futurist. I see chapters 4 through 22 applying to the future. And, and as I read this, what I'm seeing is right there for the things that you have seen. What has he seen? He has seen Jesus Christ in the midst of the churches, Jesus Christ as the living one, the one who is the first and the last. So he's seen these visions about Jesus Christ, these realities about him, about him holding the stars, about him being in the midst of the candlesticks. And then he's going to write about the things that are. If you look at chapter 2, verse 1, to the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands, I know your works. Drop down to verse number 4, but I have this against you. And so things that are, we're going to see that in chapters 2 and 3. Look at chapter 4, verse 1. After this I looked and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. So that would be from chapter 4 forward, the things that are going to be yet future. So I do take chapter 1, verse number 19 as being programmatic, as being an outlay, basically a map for the book that John has seen what was, he is going to address what is, and then he will address what will be in chapter 4 and following. Now again, as I said earlier, John's vision from Jesus Christ, Jesus gives him a vision of, of, of Jesus in the midst of seven lampstands. 
These are the seven churches. I think that this is a very Jewish portrayal of the churches. In other words, I think that as Jesus Christ gives this vision, he would expect you to link this to Zechariah 4 and the seven lamps that represent Israel. And among the things that I think could be important in this is that the church is an outgrowth. In fact, it is the natural outgrowth of Judaism. It is the outworking of Judaism. And there's going to be something that's going to be very practical for one of the churches. Look at chapter 2 and verse number 9, the church of Smyrna. Chapter 2 and verse number 9. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say they are Jews but are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison and you will be tested for 10 days. And for 10 days you will have tribulation. So uh, there is a, there's a persecution going on among the church here at this time by Jews. And Jesus says they are the synagogue of Satan. What would be the persecution? Typically, when you had Jews showing up in a New Testament church, it was Judaizers trying to get the church to buy into legalistic things like uh, circumcision and proselytizing into Judaism, then becoming a Christian, then coming to Christ. Um, what's going on here? One of the realities of the Roman kingdom was that they were emperor worshipers. And uh, you, you had one emperor in 40 AD named Caligula, and Caligula was the first one to not wait until he died to be deified. He was the first one to say, no, 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 you can call me a god now. And, and the guy was crazy, literally, as in senile in, in, in some ways. He really la- In fact, after he deified himself, later he deified his horse. So um, that, that's the kind of guy. So, yeah, but uh, you had to worship the emperor. And if you did not worship the emperor, you were an insurrectionist to the Roman kingdom. Now, the Jews got a pass out of this because they had demonstrated themselves so fiercely monotheistic that they left Rome with one of two choices. You can either kill us or you can give us an exemption, but we will not worship the emperor. So Jews were allowed to not worship the emperor. Now, the Christianity had become illegal under Nero that had continued here under Domitian, and so Christianity is illegal. But when you went out to the different provinces, to these different churches, it just depended on regional leadership. Would they kill Christians? Or would they give Christians an exemption as Jews? And it seems like the church of Smyrna was in one of those, but then you have the synagogue of Satan showing up, which say they are Jews but are not. They're not the real Jerusalem. What would be their mission against the church? I think their mission against the church would be to say, excuse me, Romans, we are Jews of all Jews. These Christians are not. And then to turn them over and really to force the hand of the Roman authorities locally to then uh, execute Christians, to persecute and execute Christians. So um, that, would, that would be my best understanding of what's going on. But this is a very, very Jewish uh, view of the church. Seven lampstands, I think it just has to be an echo of Zechariah chapter 4, verse number 2. What about the angels? The angels could be angels. They could be messengers. Uh, they could be pastors. They could be the readers in the local church. Blessed is the one who reads, reads and those who hear. Uh, there, there's many different interpretations. Uh, the word angelos for angels was used when Jesus Christ sent out some of his messengers. When John the Baptist sent messengers to Jesus to say, are you he who should come or should we look for another? Uh, John the Baptist sent his angelos, his messengers to Jesus to ask these things. So the term angelos could be humans, 
It could be angels. Usually it's angels. Which is it here? Uh, I'm not going to be able to tell you um, definitively. But if you look at verse number one, I'll tell you why my, my leaning is that it's human beings. Look at verse one. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him, to Jesus, to show his servants that things must took take place, he, Jesus, made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John. So you see the food chain of information. God gives it to Jesus, who submits to God. Jesus sends it by an angel to John. And now John is writing to the angel or messenger of the church, and that messenger will relay it to the church. I just see the food chain as just being a natural one where it's already been handled by angels given to John, and John is now giving it to a human messenger to give to the church. Um, so that, 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 would be, that would be my general leaning to see it that way. Whether these messengers were appointed representatives of the local church that were going out to minister to John on Patmos, and, and they were going as a group, much like you see with the Jerusalem offering uh, from the churches of Achaia and, um, and, uh, and, and, and Macedonia, um, these churches sent their seven messengers, and, and, and God is saying, hey, I want you to write this to these seven churches. So I think it all could be just very practical as to what's going on. Whether these are pastors or human representatives of the church, I do want to point this out. The, the, the seven stars are in the hand of God. I think that implies protection, but I think more so it implies ownership. And whether you have elected a special messenger to serve in this church or whether you are looking at pastors, um, pastors are very much... at the disposal of Jesus Christ. We're under his authority. We are discharged for his purposes. And, and I think that that is a good reminder of the place of a pastor, that a pastor is, is there to point to Jesus Christ. He's to do Jesus Christ's bidding. A pastor is not a placeholder for Jesus. In other words, Jesus is not with us, and so, boy, we sure wish we had Jesus, but we have our pastor. There should be no sense in which you look at a pastor as a placeholder. A pastor is in the hand of Jesus Christ, being sent by Jesus Christ to point to the glory of Jesus Christ. So a pastor's job is to point to Jesus. And, and so I, I think that there is something of an ownership there. Protection, yes, but I really think that there is a sense of ownership and, and use that God uses these stars, that Jesus uses them uh, to, his, his, uh, to his own glory. And so um, you should always look forward to Jesus' coming. You should always delight to walk with Jesus by faith until he comes. And you should always pray for me that I will do an adequate job of pointing to Jesus, of pointing you to Jesus in your walk with him. So as we wrap up today's passage, uh, Jesus Christ, the lamb who takes away the sins of the world, is revealed as eternal God, full of power and dominion over the realm of death. He is at the center of the church universal. He is the one in the midst of the seven lampstands. He holds the seven stars. Anything we do as a church, anything the local pastor does of it at a local church, it is all to point to Jesus. It is all to glorify Jesus. He is fearfully powerful, but he came to die for you. He is the one who is living forevermore because he died for you and came back to life. And he who would otherwise be a source of fear and terror if you were to encounter him, has given himself for your salvation, and you are to take comfort in this. He died, he lives forevermore. He has the keys to death and Hades. He has all authority to unlock that. You know how this life turns out. 
You've been to hospitals. You've been to nursing homes, perhaps. You've been to funerals. Under the curse of sin, it just simply does not end well for these bodies that we have. It just does not end well. Jesus died for your sins. His righteousness can become your righteousness if you trust Him as your Lord and Savior. He calls upon you to repent and to believe. He calls on you to place your faith in Him and then to know this, He is God. He is mighty, He is powerful, and He has everything under control. He has the keys to death and to Hades. That ought to comfort you. Let's just take a moment and bow in silent prayer. If you've never trusted Christ as your Savior, this would be a good time to confess that you're a sinner, that you need Jesus, that you're going to trust Jesus. If you're a Christian, ask God to help you to walk in light of Jesus, in light of His power, being comforted, even as we have sinful issues, even as we have aging bodies, that we be comforted in this power of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we would glorify you, your name. We would glorify our Savior Jesus Christ by recognizing that he is God, that he is the living one, that he has solved our greatest problem, which is our sin that had divorced us from you. And Father, he has reunited us with you for all of eternity. Father, as we live our lives in a sinful world with decaying bodies, our hope is in Jesus Christ. We look forward to him, his power, his redemption. Lord, bless us to walk with him. Bless us as we continue this study. I pray that you'd carry us through this week, honoring you, glorifying you. In Jesus' name, amen.